Welcome to Bite Size Battles. 300,000 Helvetii waited to cross the Soon River. They had left their homeland in the northern Alpine foothills weeks earlier, tired of fighting off incessant attacks from Germanic tribes. They were going to have a little relocation to the idyllic and fertile lands of southwestern Gaul. The fact there was already another Gallic tribe there didn't matter too much. They could either join with the Helvetii or die. To get there they had to cross the lands of the powerful Aedui, and they had negotiated free passage with the exchange of hostages. But the Helvetii had become a little too excitable during the journey. Some crops had been stolen, a couple of villages burned to the ground, that sort of thing. Nothing too serious. But the idiot Aedui had gone whining to their allies, the Romans, the southern people who never ceased trying to extend their influence into Gaul. And now, a certain Julius Caesar had shown up and was chasing them with an army. Ugh, Caesar. The man was intolerable. He wouldn't listen to reason. They had told him they were just moving across Gaul to relocate, that's all. No need for a confrontation. But he'd raised an army and was chasing them, like some demented dog who just won't leave you alone. Not to worry though, he hadn't caught up yet and soon the Helvetii would be across the river and would leave their troubles behind. Soon might be a little optimistic though. They were using a motley collection of rickety old boats to ferry ones and twos and small groups across at a time. The entire tribe was on the move. Men, women, children, animals and supplies. Eventually, after 20 days, they had managed to build a pretty shaky pontoon bridge and they could speed up a bit. The end was nearly in sight when around three quarters of the tribe had crossed. But just then, horns sounded. Roman horns. Thundering over the brow of a hill came horsemen, charging full tilt towards the bridge on the eastern shore, where a full quarter of the tribe still waited, mouths now dropped open in terror-stricken silence. From the woods too came thousands of legionaries clad in the red of Rome, swarming towards the stranded Helvetii. Suddenly the Gauls on the eastern shore woke up, women and children screaming, rushing to the bridge in panic and wading into the water. Men from the opposite bank tried to get back across the bridge to resist the Romans, but couldn't in the crush. And those soldiers still on the eastern bank now drew swords with bared teeth and wide eyes. The Helvetii were some of the fiercest warriors of all Gaul, trained from birth to fight with sword and spear, and honed through constant war with the Germans. But there just weren't enough of them on the eastern bank. The Roman horse cleared a path to the bridge, trampling anyone in their path regardless of age or sex. Once there they set it alight as legionaries reached the scattered Helvetii warriors facing them. 
A fierce but one-sided fight broke out as the Gallic men tried to defend their women and children from Roman slaughter. It was in vain. Every man, woman and child still on the eastern bank of the Soon River was cut down. Caesar's Gallic Wars had begun. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Welcome to the third episode of The Rise of Julius Caesar, The Gallic Wars. I could write an entire series on Caesar's Gallic Wars, but together with our next chapter on Vercingetorix, we'll have to rely on two episodes. And first, how we got here. Caesar had spent so much time abusing his consular powers, riding roughshod over Republican traditions with his triumvirate partners, and generally making a mockery of the Senate, that once his consulship was over, it was likely he would be brought to trial the second he finished his customary farewell speech. Caesar had made a notorious scoundrel by the name of Clodius a tribune with the power of veto. Clodius was a patrician but wanted to become a plebeian so he could run for tribune, which Caesar had made happen. It was a despicable act as far as the Senate was concerned. This man Clodius had even caused a scandal by trying, and maybe even succeeding, in seducing Caesar's second wife, Pompeia, at a women-only festival. He had dressed as a woman to gain access. Caesar had divorced Pompeia following the scandal, but he wanted Clodius as tribune because he could then have Cicero, one of Caesar's enemies, exiled. The Senate hated him for that. And when perhaps Caesar's most implacable enemy, the Senator Cato, was thrown in prison by Caesar for daring to oppose one of his laws, nearly every senator walked out in Cato's support. Worst of all, at least aesthetically, was the ex-consul Lucullus grovelling at Caesar's feet in the Senate House, weeping and begging forgiveness. Lucullus had risen to speak against one of Caesar's laws too, but Caesar had shouted him down, listing all the crimes Lucullus had committed in the East. The sight of a respected ex-consul kneeling at Caesar's feet was an image which lasted long in the minds of the Senate. To understand why Caesar had been acting this way, we need to understand that the Senate had been throwing proverbial grenades at every attempt Caesar had made to modernise the way Rome and its provinces was run. Rome, while constitutionally a republic, had now grown into an empire. It needed a long overdue revamp of the laws and practices which had worked well when it was a small city-state but which were now hopelessly anachronistic for an empire which stretched from the Atlantic to Syria. Much of it was simply fair too, including the settlement of land in the east to Pompey's soldiers, which the Senate had been blocking for two whole years. And much of it was about administering the provinces, preventing corruption and ensuring good behaviour from governors. All pretty reasonable but Caesar was sick to the back teeth of the obstinacy and petty infighting of the Senate, which kept frustrating his plans, keeping Rome in the past, and keeping power, 
wealth and privilege, selfishly guarded for themselves and a very small number of patricians. So, together with Pompey and Crassus, Caesar began to force through his laws in any way he could. The Senate in turn was sick of Caesar's trampling of traditions, circumnavigation of their power and use of brute force. Cicero even said of Caesar in a letter, We should all be very afraid. He is surely making himself into a tyrant. Hence the risk Caesar took when his consulship was over. The senatorial wolves would be after his blood. So, through a combination of bribery, Pompey's help and the support of the plebs, Caesar worked out a solution. He was granted by the People's Assembly, which could bypass the Senate, three prosperous provinces as a proconsular governorship. They included Illyricum on the Adriatic coast, Cisalpine Gaul of northern Italy, and Transalpine Gaul of modern-day southern France, along the Mediterranean coast. Transalpine Gaul was a rich and fertile land, and was known simply as the province, which is where its modern name comes from. Provence. These governorships had huge benefits. Caesar would become rich from taxation alone, and it came with a five-year period of immunity from prosecution. The wolves would have to wait. These regions also meant Caesar controlled the legions closest to Rome, being on the border of the lands of the long-haired Gauls, as the Romans often called them, where he was already planning to invade. Caesar wanted all of Gaul. He wanted its wealth, its fertile lands, and most of all, the glory of conquering it. But where to start, and what excuse could he use? He still technically needed the Senate's approval for war. Just as he was musing, the Helvetii made it easy for him. Once they began ravaging the lands of the Aedui, who then appealed to their Roman allies for help, Caesar was let off the leash. The Helvetii, of course, were trying to move to southwestern Gaul so they could get away from constant Germanic warfare. But now Caesar was pursuing them, in part because the Aedui had asked for help, but really because he didn't want the lands the Helvetii had left to become occupied by Germanic tribes who would then bring their incessant raiding to his provinces. He wanted the Helvetii back where they had come from and was prepared to fight them to make them. When he caught them by the Soon River, the slaughter was horrific, as we've heard. The remaining Helvetii were embittered but continued fleeing west as fast as their feet would carry them, because to their horror, Caesar had built a bridge across the Soon in just a single day, when it had taken them twenty. Just imagine now the terror this remorseless enemy would have instilled in the Helvetii. You've just watched helplessly as a full quarter of your people have been slain on the other side of the river. And then the Romans who did it build a bridge across that river in the space of just one span of the sun. So they ran with Caesar in hot pursuit. But as Napoleon said nearly 1900 years later, an army marches on its stomach. 
Caesar was supposed to be supplied by the Aedui, but they kept failing to deliver food. So now, deep inside Gaul and with hunger beginning to gnaw at the Romans, Caesar decided to take the food he needed from the Aedui citadel of Bibracti. The Helvetii learned that Caesar had switched from pursuing them to looking for food, and now turned back to take vengeance on his withdrawing army. Tens of thousands of fierce Helvetii warriors, armed with huge, shining longswords and massive oval shields, were about to force Caesar to fight the first major battle of his command. While he'd led troops in Spain and been part of the fights against Mytilene, Mithridates and Spartacus, this was Caesar's first big test as a sole commander. As the Helvetii descended on the Roman rearguard, Julius Caesar remembered how he felt when he had stood before the statue of Alexander the Great, how he had wept and felt incomparable to the great man. Now was his time to show Alexander, the Roman world and all of history, what Julius Caesar was made of at the Battle of Bibracti in 58 BC. With the sounds of fighting already reaching Caesar's ears, he ordered his cavalry to support his rearguard with all haste. They were mostly Romano Gauls from Transalpine and Cisalpine Gaul, but they launched themselves at the Helvetii, thundering into the desperate melee. They bought Caesar a few minutes to form his troops up on a hill before they were beaten off. Caesar had four veteran legions in a line, with two newer ones and his auxiliaries behind. It was an army around 40,000 strong. The Helvetii, now reformed, began advancing with unnerving song, hoots of derision and raucous energy. They almost certainly outnumbered Caesar, who said there were 90,000 warriors bent on their destruction. Modern estimates are as low as 20,000, but the battle which was about to erupt lasted all day, and I don't think it's feasible that just 20,000 Helvetii warriors lasted all day against Caesar's legions. My own estimate would put the Helvetii at around 60,000, given the size of other contemporary Gallic armies and the fact their entire tribe was on the move. No one was anywhere else. The long-haired, muscular Helvetii got within Pelum range and charged. Long swords raised high, ready for deadly downstrokes into Roman skulls. The Romans launched their Pelum en masse, a cloud of javelins which shot out from their ordered lines, seeming to hang in the air for a moment before crashing down into shields and bodies. Hundreds of Helvetii were knocked from their feet, dead and wounded. Pelum which struck shields stayed there as their heads bent on impact and could not be removed. Throwing their encumbered shields away, many Helvetii ran the last few metres exposed without cover. The legions launched their second Pelum cloud, causing utter carnage at close range, killing and wounding dozens and hundreds, and forcing even more to drop their shields. The Helvetii behind struggled to regain cohesion, and now Caesar roared the order to advance. 
Centurions thundered at their men who drew swords and charged in tight formation. The disordered Gauls reeled in the face of the onslaught, many simply pushed to the ground by a single wall of red and either crushed or stabbed to death. Those that stood without shields suffered terribly from multiple gladii wounds, and even those with shields could find no answer to the close-packed Roman lines, which pushed forward inexorably. The Gauls broke, but even Caesar said they not once turned their backs on the Romans. They fought like lions all the way down into a valley, and then back up another hill opposite. But the incredible Roman advance had exposed their flanks. And now, Helvetian allies who had stood in reserve swept into Caesar's right flank. The sudden attack sent ripples of panic through the Roman ranks, but Caesar steadied them from the front, where he would often be found. He never shied away from danger as a general, and his men fought all the harder for it. Still, things were desperate. Caesar had to divide his already smaller army in two to counter the new threat on the right, and for hours the slaughter was great. Helvetian longswords cleaved helmets in two and took limbs like butter. Roman gladii stole lives with brutal efficiency, thrusting into bellies and twisting backwards to release guts, steam and screams. The sounds of steel clashing, the grunts and shouts of thousands and thousands of men, shrieking horses, frantic cries, bones snapping and flesh ripping. These ancient battles were truly shocking affairs. Men were pressed close as lovers. You could smell their breath, see the colour of their eyes, the sudden terrified grimace as you find a gap beneath their shield and plunge your steel into their groin or belly, chest or throat. Here the Romans had their advantage. The Helvetii, pressed from behind by their own eager men, and from the front by the weight of the legions, could barely find room to swing their longswords. The Roman shortswords, though, were much more effective, used as simple stabbing weapons that the space allowed for. All the same, it was essentially a savage slugging match. Eventually, as dusk began to fall and unable to resist the Romans any longer, most of the Helvetians fled into forest. One small cadre of die-hard warriors made a final stand amongst the baggage wagons, and by the dying light of the evening sun, swords flashed in one last symbol of Helvetian independence before it was extinguished forever. Caesar reports that just a hundred thousand of the original 300,000 Helvetians who had set out from their homeland remained. Most of the 200,000 others had been killed, with a sizable number of slaves taken who would soon fill the slave markets of Rome. Caesar only allowed the survivors to return to their homeland and gave them enough grain and seed to start again saying they must remain there to act as a guard against Germanic expansion south into Roman lands. The Helvetians prostrated themselves before him and then trudged home, now essentially a vassal state of Rome. 
Julius Caesar had won the first major military victory of his life as a general, and to him it felt sweet. He enriched himself with Helvetian gold and the cash that flowed into his pockets from sold slaves, and he showered his army with both praise and riches. The Senate in Rome could only awkwardly applaud him, unhappy to see him successful and rich, but had to be seen to support his victory in keeping the province and Italy safe from marauding Helvetians. Those who applauded Caesar genuinely, though, were almost every other tribe of Gaul. At this stage, they had no real fear of Caesar or Rome. Yes, they could stick their noses in from time to time, or send an army to help an ally. But they always returned back south come winter. The Romans had no real interest in Gaul. And more than that, Caesar had just helped to keep Gaul stable by stopping hundreds of thousands of Helveti from cruising through the countryside and then taking the southwest, which would have seriously upset the status quo. But Caesar did have interest in Gaul. A lot of interest. As we've heard, Caesar had already made up his mind that he wanted Gaul to be his place of glory, and that he would add it to the provinces of Rome. Now, as a collection of Gallic tribes came to ask Caesar a favour, little did they know they were about to invite the fox directly into the chicken coop. Impressed with Caesar, Tribal leaders from across Gaul told him of a threat to Gallic stability even greater than the Helvetii. Two other major tribes, the Sequani and Arverni, had been conspiring with a Germanic chieftain named Ariovistus to conquer all of Gaul. Ariovistus had crossed the Rhine and now would not return, and now he and a hundred thousand of his men started ransacking the place. In spite of the Sequani and Arverni renouncing their alliance with Ariovistus, the Gauls pleaded that they could not face the Germans alone. They needed Rome's help. Caesar must have sat there with the corners of his mouth quivering as he fought to contain his smile. He was being invited north by pretty much the whole confederation of Gallic tribes to help them in a war against the Germans. Once that little job was done, they thought Caesar would leave again, but he wouldn't. In fact, I think this is just about one of the biggest miscalculations in history. The Gauls had the manpower to fight off Ariovistus on their own, but they squabbled amongst themselves so much they did not trust each other to send off a huge allied army to face the German when they feared they would be stabbed in the back at home. So why not get Caesar to do the fighting for them? Great idea. But once Caesar did crush Ariovistus, he stayed in Gaul with his army, making alliances and ensuring that his help was rewarded with subordination to Rome. And now the real business of annexation began. Caesar made an alliance with a tribe of the Belgi peoples of modern-day northeast France Belgium and the Netherlands. The only problem was that the rest of the Belgi tribes didn't think much of that and declared war on Caesar's new ally. Caesar, of course, was now honour-bound to intervene, 
which I think was his plan all along. This is essentially the template for Caesar's conquest of Gaul. Get a tribe to invite you in, kill all of its foes, and then demand alliance, with alliance being a euphemism for subordination and Romanization. Caesar himself said the Belgi were the bravest and most civilised of Gauls, and there were tens of thousands of them. But a sort of military dance ensued, where the two armies avoided a major pitched battle, always looking for an edge over the other and stripping the countryside of supplies. Eventually, the Belgic army disbanded to return home, convinced that Caesar had run out of food and would have to retreat. But instead of going backwards, Caesar force marched his men directly into Belgi territory, reaching one of their major forts before they did. They were treated to a grand display of Roman-style siege warfare, the likes of which they had never seen before. Just the sight of catapults like onagers, giant crossbows called ballista, solid roofed battering rams and gigantic siege towers all made the Belgi realise the game was up. They promptly surrendered, causing a domino effect amongst the neighbouring tribes. Once they were seeing Caesar wrap up the resistance of one of the major Gallic confederations without a fight, multiple tribes came offering themselves in alliance. By 57 BC then, just a year after defeating the Helvetii, almost all of the south, east and northeast of Gaul was in Caesar's hands. But it was beginning to feel like the Gauls had a never-ending supply of men and tribes still willing to fight him. Because now an ambush very nearly defeated Caesar and might have ended his life. The ferocious Nervi tribe set up a trap for the Romans close to the Samba River, where Caesar began to set up camp for the night. When the camp was only half built, 60,000 Nervi warriors came screaming from the hills, hair flying wildly, eyes aflame with hate and death. So unprepared were the Romans that they were quickly surrounded, even as their discipline ensured they were able to form up just in time. But flanked on both sides and in shock from the ambush, the Roman lines began to falter. Seeing that his army could break at any moment, Caesar himself snatched up a shield and ran into battle, cutting left and right in a savage display as the usually solid Roman shield wall began to disintegrate into thousands of individual jewels. Caesar roared orders for his legions to close together so they were fighting back to back, completely encircled by vicious nervy warriors. Caesar's banner was with him, and seeing it in the thick of the fighting, his famous 10th legion, which had been with him since his days in Spain, roared back from chasing off a smaller unit of nervy allies and launched themselves to his defence. The historian Plutarch said, Caesar's courage had the effect of making his men fight beyond their normal abilities. In other words, they fought like madmen for their commander. With gritted teeth, the tenth soared their way into the nervy mass, and even as they were pummeled by Gallic sword and shield, they fought to Caesar's side. 
the tenth's impact was sudden and devastating. What had been the brink of Roman defeat was turned into a nervy rout, and they fled the site of battle with thousands slain and captured in the retreat. Over the following two years to 55 BC, Caesar and his subordinates continued mopping up resistance across Gaul, but soon he considered it his. Caesar had fought and intimidated his way to the conquest of Gaul in just over three years. He got a little bored of not fighting and spent time knocking the Germans about in 55 BC and made a trip to Britain in the same year. In 54 BC, he invaded across the Channel properly, took tribute from British tribes and left again without much further interest in the foggy island which most Romans viewed mysteriously, not acquisitively. It would be another century until the Romans returned, this time to stay. So, by the end of 54 BC, Caesar was rich from booty, slaves, military glory and popular acclaim back home in Rome. Gaul was his, Britannia paid him gold and the Germans were quiet. Time to take a Roman bath. But he had misjudged the mood of Gaul. Despite some local unrest and revolts, Caesar had gone back to Rome in 53 BC, finally declaring Gaul the newest Roman province. It was that move, though, which sparked into life the most serious of Caesar's challenges yet. When a Gallic chieftain finally united the previously bickering Gallic tribes into one fearsome alliance. They had, finally, understood the need to fight together to preserve their way of life, which they feared was now under existential threat. Join us next time as we meet a grand coalition of Gauls struggling in a massive rebellion against Caesar and Rome. Join us as we meet the man who brought them together, Vercingetorix. I'm Andrew McKenzie. As always, thanks for listening. See you then.